critical systems failure. Launching life pod. Navigating to nearest habitable planet. Life support online. Rations check complete. Entertainment capacity critical. Please select shortlist. Hello and welcome to Remote Outpost Games, our interview show which may bear passing similarity to a popular tropical island theme music selection show. Our guests are stranded on a remote outpost far from the Galnet comms channels and with no immediate hope of rescue. We ask them to pick five games they couldn't live without if they were put in this situation. Uh, since we're Lave Radio, every outcast already gets a Lifeline subscription to Elite Dangerous and a Game Boy copy of Tetris. Everything else is up to them. Tonight I'm joined by Lave Radio's Chris Jarvis, but tonight he's wearing a different hat, and I'll be interviewing Chris Jarvis, the creator of audio dramas, including the Elite-themed Escape Velocity, audiobooks for various Elite Dangerous novels, and the Chaos Reborn full-cast audio drama. Hello, Chris. Hello, John. Nice to chat to you again. I'm glad you could make it. <laughs> it was all your idea, but I'm glad you could make it. Well, yeah, it's uh, we we had this idea for a show, and we thought we'll try it out on me, and we'll see if it works, and then we will uh, get in some slightly more illustrious guests. Quick question, just off the bat: okay. What was the first game that you remember playing? Oh, I remember the Horizons tape that came with um, the Spectrum, and there was a breakout clone on it the wall or through the wall or over the wall or something like that but it, it was basically it was, it was a breakout game and that was the first computer game that i ever remember actually playing myself i had this shadowy childhood memory um, of an old atari before that but i don't ever remember really playing it or being old enough to play it um but i remember i remember that breakout on the spectrum being a kind of i suppose a kind of watershed moment for me that's where my sort of gaming memories begin so, I mean, you're on the Live Radio podcast, which obviously yeah. focuses on Elite Dangerous, which is a game. Um, but as we know, you know, it's possible to be part of a game community and not actually do a lot of gaming. Do you actually <laughs> yeah. have a lot of time to play games? My instinct is to kind of say no, um, because obviously between trying to work and look after my daughter and, and do the podcast and those things, my instinct would be to say, oh, no, no, I hardly have any time to play games. But I think actually with the gaming devices that you've got now that kind of tell you how many hours you've put into playing games, um, I can see empirically that that's not true. And actually, I do have a lot of time to play games and I do make a lot of time to play games. I mean, games are my my kind of number one, you know, stuff I like to do in my free time. I mean, I, you know, I love audio drama and I, I listen to a lot of audio drama kind of as my entertainment. But in terms of my thing that I do, I'm really into games. I've always been really into games uh, as a as an entertainment, as an art form, as a as a storytelling medium, as a kind of sort of journey. You know, most of most of my life has been kind of defined by games. If I remember what I was doing at a particular point when I was a certain age, there are always games that I can associate with that time in my life. Right, well, we'll jump into your choices then. Ooh. Your first choice, and it is Invisible Ink. Get to the main server, collect the data, and get out. No detours. Copy that, Central. Proceeding to target. Oh. Insertion was clean. Alarm level holding steady. Okay, so Invisible Ink is... The, the, the thing that it's most similar to is a turn-based squad game. So for anyone who's played the... Like, like XCOM or Fire Emblem or you know, even the original UFO, there's a very familiar kind of mechanic about it in the sense that you have your agents on a grid-based map and you have a certain number of units that they can move and then when you've used up all your movement points, um, that's the end of your turn and then the enemy team takes a turn. And where they've changed up the format with Invisible Ink, and for me this is what really makes the game, the moment I played it, just an instant classic, rather than it being a squad-based shooting game, the combat thing. What they did with Invisible Ink was they created a game which made it entirely possible to get in and out of a facility, complete your objective and escape without ever triggering an alert. And it's really, for me, 
it's the first time I've played a stealth game that gives you the tools to actually be really stealthy uh, and, and not get seen and actually fig- and you know have a certain amount of obviously precognizance about what the enemy guards are going to do on their turn. But it's a very it's a very tense game. It's a very gripping game, and each mission kind of gives you a very you know, very different challenge. But it's very much a roguelike in the sense that it is one of these games that you have four in-game days that you had to complete your overall mission. And you either complete those four days and start again with different characters and a different setup, or you get beaten, you know, trying to do it. And so it's, it's you know, it is roguelike in the sense that the levels are procedurally generated and you're kind of going back and, and trying again. But in terms of, you know, games with procedurally generated levels, it is probably the most sophisticated map creation I think I've ever seen. Every building you go into feels completely new. And yes, you know, you'll walk into certain rooms and you'll start to recognize room templates, but actually within that, you know, the doors in and out could be anywhere. The cameras could be anywhere. The safes could be anywhere. The guards could be anywhere. So actually it's a hugely repeatable game. When guards or cameras are looking, every object in the room casts a kind of visibility shadow and as long as you're sitting in that shadow you can't be seen and then of course you can do things that are that are fairly standard for this sort of thing where you can you can you know spend a point to see what a guard's patrol pattern is um, and you can actually use various weapons and upgrades to tag them so that you can always see their routes and the um, there's a real kind of cyberpunk theme to it so each of the characters is a cyborg and they have certain upgrades in their body that allow them all to do unique things and then they all have inventory slots so you can equip them with like tasers and gas grenades and special remote hacking tools for getting into terminals and safes i mean you said that the the levels were procedurally generated but then you also said that it's it's possible to play it and you know completely stealthily so does that mean that if the, the game is solvable in that if you know all of the rules, because obviously the levels get generated and they've got to be generated in such a way to guarantee that they are doable mm. in stealth. Yeah. So does that mean if you've learned all the rules there, then it takes the challenge out of it or is there some, something else to it? There's, there's an element of risk in everything. For in, I'll give you, give you an example. I'll walk you through a, a case. You, you'll walk up to a door. You can't see what's the other side of that door you can spend an action point to peek through the door and that will give you a 45 degree cone of vision into the room, okay? So that will show you everything in the room, whether there's guards, you know, within that 45 degrees. You can then choose to open the door and then if you open the door and peek again, you get a full sweep of the entire room, okay? But if there is, when you open the door, if there's a guard that wasn't in your initial survey and he's looking at the door when it opens that will create an alert for that guard and he'll kind of go, oh, that door just opened. And his patrol will change and he will walk up to the door and investigate what's around it. One of the things that makes it really satisfying as a game uh, and as a kind of, I suppose, a puzzle game uh, above anything else is actually learning how to manipulate the guards so that what you can do is you can open a door to bring a guard off their patrol. So you can kind of step in and out of the guard's line of vision in order to manipulate them and get them to walk kind of where you want them to go. It's actually hugely nuanced because of the the numbers of different tools you can equip for dealing with various things, um, the upgrades that your characters can have. For instance, one of the characters that I like to play with the most is a character called Prism. And the idea is that in this sci-fi setting, she's a hollow actress. She wears this holographic costume that makes her look like the part she's playing. Now, in her role as an agent within this sort of shadowy agency... She has a holographic disguise that makes her look like a guard. And it's great because it means that you can walk around the level with kind of impunity. You can walk past cameras. You can walk straight through guards' line of sight. And, you know, they won't respond to you. But the, again, it's, it's all about managing risk. Her holographic disguise uses power. And power is a resource in the game that you have to continually manage because power operates your your hacking tools that you need to do things like turn off cameras and open safes and all that sort of thing. But the other catch with the holographic disguise is if you walk within one square of the way a guard is facing, they'll realize it's a trick and it will destroy your disguise. 
So it's kind of, you know, when you first when you first get it, you sort of think, wow, this feels really overpowered. I can just look like a guard and walk around. But actually, you start to realize how easy it is to get caught out and to suddenly have a guard that you weren't expecting, you know, walk up to you and, and blow your cover. There's so many kind of different things at play with it that it actually becomes a very expressive game and it becomes about you kind of playing the game the way you want to play it. I mean, I've done streams of this game and um, people have commented on, oh, it's really interesting to see someone else playing the game and playing it totally differently to the way I play it. Um, So the way I'm kind of expressing it is very much my take on it. It's just a fascinating game. And it's also a game that drives, you know, drives a really interesting emergent narrative because you're taking on missions as you're choosing them. I mean, you have this world map with different mission types that you can pick. So you're very much forging your own path through the game. But actually, even within that, even within a level, you'll come up with this amazing kind of story event, which if it was in a film or a story you know, or a book, would be this, this incredible narrative where your, your two agents have kind of you know, separated off to different parts of the facility and then maybe one of your guys gets knocked out by a guard and then you have to find your way to a vending machine to buy like a med gel and then go and find your downed comrade, inject them with the needle and try and rescue them back to the lift. And that's just within a level. And then you get this kind of meta-narrative arc which gets created over your levels, which is, you know, maybe you've had to just decide to evacuate a facility and leave someone behind because it was too dangerous to rescue them. And then for the next mission, you've then got to decide, well, do I try and find a holding cell and try and get my agent back? Or given that this mission is against the clock, do I leave that agent gone and go and pick up different weapons and different items? So for me, yeah, because I'm so interested in storylines in games and I'm so interested in um, the the kinds of self-expression and emergent narrative that you can create in your own games, Invisible Ink is full of opportunities for you to create these wonderfully intricate stories between your you know, between the different characters, because each agent you choose is a different character with their own backstory uh, and their own particular setup. Decker, how long till extraction? 30 seconds. Uh, Invisible Ink is by Cly Entertainment. Uh, it's on Windows, OS X, Linux, and I think this year they also released it on PlayStation 4. Yeah, so it's an independent game. So uh, I, I take it what well, you came across this on Steam. How did you actually... Find it. In fact, how do you come across whatever games you play? Yeah, I think it's it's varied over the years. Um, I used to so when I was obviously when I was younger, it was you know it's obviously kind of it was the games my brother brought home, and then when I was a bit older, it was mail order listings in the back of you know computer magazines. But I guess more you know more recently now, I think online stuff and download you know clients like Steam or the PlayStation Store or even you know perhaps to a slightly lesser degree even the 3DS store, you know, you see things coming and going in there. And I'm always such a big fan of of any kind of download platform that gives a space for indie developers to to sell their games because that's quite often where the the, the new and interesting ideas are coming from. I'd become aware of Invisible Ink. They did a very, very strong trailer for it. It has this kind of animation style that looks a bit like Pixar's The Incredibles. It's got this, you know, this slightly hyper-animated comic book drawing style. And they did a launch trailer for it, which was very evocative and very strong. Um, and it kind of drew me to it. And then it was actually, it was on my wish list for a while. And then when I met Julian Gollop at last year's LaveCon, he kind of recommended, we were talking obviously about turn-based stuff, and he recommended Invisible Ink and said, you know, this is a really interesting game. and They've done some really interesting things with it. Well, you can't get higher praise than from Julian Gollop. Yeah, <laughs> For a recommendation, <laughs> can you really? No, so, quite uh, Okay, we're going to move on to your second game now. Ah, uh, yes. And your second choice is The Settlers 4 on the yeah. PC. Yeah, so uh, this is one of these games I, I kind of have a bit of a history with because I played the original game of the settlers on the amiga so the amiga was a very big gaming machine for me you know hugely influential for me and the settlers had to be one of my favorite games um on that machine i mean if nothing else there was you know that music which was just absolutely brilliant 
when I when I play the recent, more recent versions of the Settlers, and I actually find found myself a big twenty minute looping MP3 of the original Amiga music and kind of put that into the Settlers Four. I've chosen Settlers Four because the series that started with the Amiga iteration obviously kind of grew with technology and animation style and graphics and uh, and, and depth. And then after Settlers Four, it kind of went in a new direction. And they started taking it away from the kind of cartoony interpretation of, of a kind of settlement and started to kind of change the graphics to a more historical realism thing. So it started to look more like things like Crusader Kings or Civilization. And that switched me off because if there's one thing that I really like about the Settlers and have always liked about Settlers, it's those individual characters that you see walking around the map and each of them doing their own things. So on the Amiga, I remember it was great that you had, you know, you built a windmill and every now and again you'd see the miller's face kind of, he'd appear in the window and then the door would open and he'd bring out a bag of grain. Or the, you would, there would be something like the farmer who would come out, throw seeds on the ground, go back into his house and then he'd reappear with a scythe and cut them down. Um, so that's always been the charm of the series for me. But in terms of it being a kind of sim and a, a world building game, the reason I prefer The Settlers over something which is arguably more popular and probably more in-depth and a much more serious game like Civilization, it's the micro-attention to detail. It's the fact that when you have a woodcutter, you can see the individual person come out of their hut, they walk out to where the trees are, they find a tree, they chop it down, tree falls over, they pick up the, the trunk, then someone comes and gets that trunk from outside the house and takes it to a sawmill. Then you see the log that you've cut down get turned into planks of wood. Then those planks of wood get taken and put on a building site, and then those items are consumed in terms of building a house. So it's a game that really revels in the detail of the simulation. Every single individual unit of any good you create exists somewhere on the map and somewhere in the screen. It's not abstracted in the way that something like food or gold is in civilization in the settlers if you want a bar of gold you have to dig the gold ore out of the ground take it to a gold works melt the gold into gold bars and then you have a piece of gold and that's that's what i've always loved about the game and it's it's one of these things it's a very zen kind of game in the sense that there's so much going on screen at any given time even when you're not doing things and making choices you can just sit and watch this simulation at work and it's a game that is very satisfying when you have built your civilization in such a way that it functions really efficiently. Yeah, I think you finished up there on on like my take on it as well. Like it's it's one of the only games on your list that I've actually played a lot of, uh, and I I played again the same as you on the Amiga, and I played the first Settlers and then the second, and yeah, sometimes it was I used to just enjoy building up my little town. You know, I wasn't really that interested in the combat and kind of taking over other other towns or anything like that. I was just happy trying to build this super efficient kind of city or whatever. Um, and although I did like um, playing the multiplayer because you used to be able to have split. If you had two uh, two mice, you could play split screen. Yeah, did you play much multiplayer online or otherwise? I didn't on the Amiga. I did play a bit of online multiplayer on Settlers 4. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think the only thing that really let it down was, in comparison to other games in the series, Settlers 4 was always quite buggy. You would quite frequently get the old server desync error messages that kind of plagued multiplayer games at the end of the 90s and the early part of the kind of noughts. So it was difficult if you're playing what amounts to a two-hour multiplayer match with somebody it's very awkward if you've been playing it for 80 minutes and then you get crashed out because of a server desync um, but I've not had, I, I kind of re-bought Settlers 4 recently from GOG and I've not had any stability issues since coming back to it so I don't know if that's something that was caused by certain hardware that was around at the time um, or whether it's just something that's fixed in the, the kind of recent re-release. Yeah I also find that uh, I think it's Settlers 2 that, that's on the DS uh, and that I just think that's a brilliant game for the DS because it's the kind of thing that you can, you know, if you're going on holiday or something, it's a game you can take with you. And again, it's this kind of zen-like experience where you can just sit there quietly playing the game and then you can just save it and come back to it whenever you want. So 
I think it's it's great across all the different platforms. Yeah. Uh, have you played it on the DS? I do have it on the DS. Yeah, it, it's probably the, the DS version for me is the version that's closest to the the kind of Amiga original. Yeah, it's just a really you know it's just a really nice game, and as you say, it's it's a game that's almost just as interesting if you pick a map with no enemies on and just play it in free settle mode and just try and build the biggest, most efficient settlement that you can. Yeah, I guess in that respect, it's, it was kind of like one of the earliest kind of sandbox games in that respect that you oh, could just so. play it like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember on the Amiga one when I when I'd actually destroyed all the enemies. I remember going back and kind of dismantling my my kind of arms industry within the settlement and then replanting all the forests. So I ended up with this very kind of agricultural world map that just had a few sort of farms and things on it. Despite, I mean, Settlers 4 is now, must be coming up to 15 odd years old, but I still go back to it and I still play it and I still enjoy it just as much as I did kind of when I first discovered it. Well, you've started off with two very kind of different games. You know, you've got The Settlers, which is like a, a full simulation, and then Invisible Ink, which is this turn-based strategy. So, I mean, is there a certain genre or theme in games that you're attracted to? Yeah, I think, you know, if I were to, if I were to pick like a genre that I'm really into, it would be the turn-based strategy thing. I'm, I'm definitely more into, into turn-based than I am into real-time because I like to kind of micromanage my options and I like to sort of think about different options. And I'm hugely into board games as well, so I like that kind of turn-in-turn-in-turn-in-turn kind of way of playing. I suppose turn-based is, is also, it's, it's kind of the epitome of brains over brawn or brains over kind of twitch mechanics, things like that. So. Yeah, and even though with something like Settlers 4, it is real-time and there is that threat of kind of invasion from, from another force, it's behind your borders and you can't really see it. And it's a game which really encourages you to just get on and do your own thing. And then as and when you kind of encounter the enemy, you have to kind of adjust your strategy accordingly but I don't think it's not forcing you into a particular rhythm and a particular action all of the time for an awful lot of the game it's very hands-off and just allows you to explore you know similar theme coming up kind of creating your own stories and I think that's the thing for me I think it's games that allow me to create my own fiction you know it's kind of gaming is sort of assisted daydreaming in a sense that you can put yourself into a different environment and you can explore something and something like the settlers really taps into that for me because i've always had that kind of slightly romantic view of what it would be like to live in a sort of medieval agricultural setting but obviously i want to be able to do that without having to deal with things like scurvy and pox and you know being slaughtered by the french army or something like that so the settler you know playing games is quite a nice way to to explore different stories and different ways of role playing I think that's what I'm really into in games, is being able to carve my own stories out within them. Uh, now we'll move on to your third choice, and that is Uncharted 2. Holy shit! Oh crap! Jump! Jump! Why would he bring a tent? So having said what I've just said about how I really like games that are a bit more thoughtful and really like games that don't kind of take you down a particular route, Uncharted 2 is the antithesis of everything I've just been saying I really like. Um, Because I do play a lot of those kind of games, turn-based stuff, you know, management games. Sometimes I do just really want some action. And in terms of, you know, shooting games, I've, I've played a lot of them over the years. Um, and I, you know, I, I played a lot of Counter-Strike when Counter-Strike was really big. And I played Doom all the way, way back when. But for me, for, you know, for this, for this list of games that I'm going to have on my, my, my stranded outpost, sometimes I do just really want to run around, blow things up and shoot stuff. And Uncharted 2 does that just in an, in an unbelievable way. When I first played the original Uncharted, it was just incredible to me how cinematic that game was. You know, it was, it was, it was obviously very similar to Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider started out really, really popular. And then the Tomb Raider games gradually got worse and worse and worse and worse until Tomb Raider had become a bit of a joke. 
when Uncharted appeared, it was the game that Tomb Raider fans had been waiting a really long time to play. A, a well-produced, well-thought-out, really exciting archaeology, exploration, shooting game. Now, what Uncharted did very differently to Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider was primarily, for me, an exploration game with a little bit of gunplay. Uncharted 2 is a shooter, first and foremost. You know, the puzzles are nice, the exploration aspect of it is, is interesting, but actually it is all about action set pieces. And for me, Uncharted looked like someone that was an action movie director had taken a look at Tomb Raider and said, how can we direct the player's experience to make them feel like they're Matt Damon running through a crowded marketplace with people shooting at them and shooting back and carts exploding and doors coming in and getting knocked down by cars and all these kinds of things. And on top of that, the actual story that had been written in the Uncharted games and the quality of the script that you follow through in playing the game just so much higher than anything else I'd encountered or played. I mean, it makes some of the other story-driven action games that are around on different things, it makes them look really amateurish. And you, you know, you, you play these other games. I won't name any because I'm not feeling unfair, but <laughs> sometimes you play these things and there'll be like a, a cut scene and you'll just be listening to the dialogue and you'll think, oh, this is just... You know, if this was a movie, I'd have walked out by now. But I'm, I'm invested in this because it's a game. So I'm going to sit and watch this terrible drama unfold. With Uncharted, every moment of it is like a brilliantly written action movie. And it's not only good in terms of the... the obviously, you know, there will be certain cutscenes and the action will be taken off your hands and you'll, you'll be kind of sitting and watching an animation. But actually, the dialogue that continues as you're playing the game and as you're running around and your character and maybe an NPC are kind of shouting quips at each other. It's so sophisticated, and it's so genuinely exciting. <sighs> I'm sweating like a hooker in church. You brought a hooker to church? Why not? And not only that, but also the, the way the camera follows you. I mean, third-person action games throughout their history have been dogged by terrible cameras. In Uncharted, they seem to finally solve it and finally the camera was not only where you wanted it to be when you were doing certain pieces of action but actually again going back to that director's eye there are certain moments when the camera would be very gently and in a very subtle way taken off you to interact with a certain moment that's happening and it's just it's like every moment of that game has been finely tuned to make it as exciting as it can possibly be. So there's a lovely moment in Uncharted 2, uh, talking about the characters having banter back and forth between them. You're basically breaking into a museum and you've got your buddy on a kind of radio comms and he's giving you directions as you're trying to break into this, this facility. And it's, this is a moment that every person who's played the game remembers because it's not often you play a game and it actually makes you properly laugh out loud. There's a guy above you, there's a guy above you. Night, and it's a real it's a real payoff of a really tense scene and everyone mm. i know who's played uncharted 2 remembers that moment i mean it was a playstation exclusive so uh, and it's got this kind of reputation that it can sell the console on its own uh, when people are deciding <laughs> between xbox or playstation it's like oh uncharted i, I you know it's, it's been a massive success in, in that way as well but the thing that really makes Uncharted 2 work and the reason why it's on my list is the gun, the actual action, the gunplay is just, it's just brilliant. It's, it's responsive, it's accurate, it's exciting. The kind of to and fro of things like, you know, someone throws a grenade and you see like a little grenade icon at your feet and you can pick it up and throw it back. And the game is full of just moments like that. And, um, and it's, you know, it's one of the few games that I've really played a lot in multiplayer. Um, I mean, I'm famously on Lave Radio, not someone that's, you know, particularly excited about, you know, multiplayer shooters or, or that, or PvP. But Uncharted 2 was just so slick and so well balanced. Okay, I mean, we've touched on a couple of things. We, you know, we talked about indie games at the start with Invisible Ink and, and Steam and, and, all, and just now console exclusives, things like that. I mean, what do you think about the current trends in gaming? There's almost never been a bigger divide between 
the really big budget studio games and the independent ones. But I think I actually quite like where it is at the moment because there was a time towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, when the idea of someone being a kind of bedroom coder, that dream that that kind of kicked off the gaming revolution, that seemed to have died. And the only way you seemed to be able to make games was larger teams. I mean, even a team of, you know, 20 or 30 people, you know, back in those days seemed that, you know, that was considered a small team. And then, of course, you had things like, I mean, you know, typified by, I suppose, like the Wing Commanders or, uh, or you know, Grand Theft Auto, just dozens and dozens and dozens of people, you know, all working on a game with huge budgets. And for a little while, that seemed to be the only way of making games. And then much more recently, because of things like Steam, providing a gaming portal for the... And I think largely the PC. I mean, I don't want to do, do down how much platform holders like Sony have done for independent game studios. But at the end of the day, the PlayStation is a proprietary format and it's not possible to release your own code on it. Whereas obviously anybody can release code that runs on a PC. And I think Steam have done an incredible job finding a way of connecting game creators with their public. I mean, there are some terrible games on Steam. There are some really awful, like, 99p things that probably took someone two days to write. But actually, Steam, you know, gives those opportunities a a chance to get out there. And it means you get to see more exciting and newer ideas. And it comes to something when, you know, someone's trying to explain a game to you that they've just found. And they kind of can't explain the game to you. They have to actually sit you down in front of it and show you it. And, and I really like that. I like the fact that I'm coming into a game that is so different from something that I've played before that I can't understand it being compared to something else. Uh, now we come to your fourth selection. Mm. And you chose Animal Crossing New Leaf on the 3DS. I haven't played any Animal Crossing, and you're probably going to have to. Exp- it's, it's a bit of a weird one from from my knowledge of it, so you're probably going to have to explain <laughs> it quite quite in depth. Yeah, and it's it's quite a nice link because I, I've sort of said that you know there are very few games that really stood out and were completely different. When I played the first Animal Crossing game that I played, which was Animal Crossing Wild World on the DS, it was unlike anything that I'd ever played ever. and it is one of these slightly challenging games where it is very difficult to explain to people what the appeal of Animal Crossing is and why it's such good fun because actually if you describe what you do in the game it sounds really dull if you kind of say to people well it's basically a game of you know talking to NPCs and fishing and digging up fossils that doesn't sound very exciting but actually once you get into the world of Animal Crossing and you start inhabiting it and, and again you know similar theme for me kind of carving your own story um, through it, it just, it, it, it's instantly addictive and, and fascinating and uh, welcoming and peaceful. The thing about it is, is that when you've been playing lots of games, Animal Crossing was such a break from shooting people and such a break from being led by the hand. Animal Crossing isn't a game that exists in a bubble. So what you have particularly on Nintendo consoles, you had on the original Game Boy a thing called Harvest Moon. Now, Harvest Moon was like a Japanese RPG, but instead of it being focused on you being a soldier that travelled around a a land and kind of killing monsters for XP, Harvest Moon was a game that put you in an RPG setting, but instead said to you, here's a farm, plant seeds, water crops, harvest your, your food and take it to the market and sell it. And that's how you make progress within the game. So they kind of turned the RPG format on its head. And then what they did with Animal Crossing is they took a lot of leaves out of the the book of of Harvest Moon and then combined it with the concept of an RPG 
hub town. So if you imagine playing an RPG where you never leave the hub, that's kind of Animal Crossing. So what you've got is you've got this social environment where you live in this this sort of little forest community and there are up to eight NPCs that live in houses around you. And your day-to-day gameplay of Animal Crossing revolves around walking around your town, talking to the NPCs and seeing what your interactions with them result in you doing that day. So you might have one NPC might talk to you and they'll say, I'm thinking of selling my green sofa. I'm looking for a piece of furniture to replace it. Can you find me something good? So then it's down to you to kind of go away and find them a piece of furniture from one of the shops or maybe it falls out of a tree or maybe you've got it in your own storage and you can hand that item of furniture to that NPC and if they like it, your relationship with them will go up. So every day, like I say, there are eight different NPCs in the town and every day they will... People who know Animal Crossing are listening to this saying, well, technically, Chris, that's not how it works. But generally speaking, you've got eight different possible interactions with your NPC throughout the course of the day. Then you've also got things like special visitors to the town. So there might be a character like Sahara who specialises in carpets and wallpapers for your house. Or you might be visited by the guy that sells art and you have to go and buy one of his paintings or sculptures. And then, of course, you're, you're developing your town. So in Animal Crossing New Leaf, you start off with this high street where most of the shops are kind of boarded up and closed. And as you interact with the game and kind of bring your town to life, these shops open up and more NPCs come into the town and you have more options for kind of developing your, your home and your community. Um, but in a sense, that's really all there is to it. I mean, there is no end game. What Animal Crossing is really about, it's, it's not a game that you'll sit down and play for like a six-hour marathon. It's a game you'll pick up for an hour, but you'll pick it up for an hour every day, and you'll do that hour every day for about a year. So, I mean, I seem to remember you producing a piece of audio. It was Animal Crossing Noir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, well, do you want to just say, you know, what made you do that? Yeah, so it's, you know, Animal Crossing is another one of these games that when I play it, it inspires my imagination because, in a sense, it's a very blank canvas and you're thrown into this environment where you're the newcomer to this town. Um, and you're having to kind of find your way and, and, and learn, learn the rules and get to know everyone in the town. But me being me, the thing that struck me about Animal Crossing New Leaf particularly, the game starts with you on a train and you're heading for a town and you don't know what this town is that you're heading to because the game hasn't given you any context. It's not like you've started the game and said, right, I'm going to create this town and I'm going to call it this. Now I'm getting on a train and going there. When the game starts, the train is already in motion. And during the journey, there's this kind of opening scene where you get accosted by this cat on the train. He's asking you all these questions about the place you're going to. And the thing that the game reminded me of most, with this thing of me suddenly waking up on a train and then being dumped in this town, and not only being dumped in a town, but being dumped in a town with a really weirdly overbearing sense of bureaucracy... Also, this idea that you're a newcomer to the village and you don't know what's going on. And at the moment they arrive, they're like, you're our new mayor. You're like, I've just turned up in this place and you're telling me that I'm the mayor. And the thing that it reminded me of most was the prisoner. So when I was playing it, this idea started to develop in my mind about actually what's going on in Animal Crossing is that you're a character a bit like number six in The Prisoner. You've been dropped in this town, but it's a massive conspiracy. So for me, I kind of flavoured the game a slightly different way for myself by assuming that my character was a dangerous paranoid who assumed that everyone in the town was keeping secrets from him and was out to get him. And that not only is that how I started playing the game, but actually then I started doing this little podcast called Animal Crossing Noir, which was meant to be a sort of Animal Crossing blog of my gameplay. So the idea is I would play the game and then I would fictionalise what I'd done in the game and turn it into a little five-minute podcast. And I did that. And interestingly enough, it's, it's actually come back because I had, after the Chaos Reborn Kickstarter 
there was a guy that I used to do some games journalism for. He listened to the the little two minute piece that I did for the for the Kickstarter. And he listened to it and he said, you know, your audio stuff is great. Would really like to work together with you on a project. Uh, and we were both interested in doing something that maybe had a bit more of appeal to a younger audience, maybe something that would appeal to kind of kids or, or early teens. Um, and we talked about Animal Crossing and I said, look, I did this this podcast. I only managed to do four of them before I got really too busy to carry on with it. But it's a really good framework, an idea for a show. And he listened to the, the four episodes of that and he said, yeah, that's really good. I want to do something with this. So I'm working with Andy Robertson over at um, Family Gamer TV. And what we've done is we've recorded 10 episodes of Animal Crossing Noir. So we've produced 10 episodes. I've done all the audio. I've, I've delivered it to Andy. And what Andy's doing is he's taking the screen captures from the game that I did and he's editing in, them into a video that accompanies the audio. Uh, but I hope people, you know, I hope people go and watch it and I hope people give it a try because it's a, it's a really fun idea. It's a really interesting show. It's, it's solo recorded. It's just me doing all the voices, but it's, it is with kind of sound effects and music and stuff. And it is Animal Crossing, but viewed through a sort of film noir lens, which is really where the, the title came from. Um, that was the idea that I wanted to record this thing that was a sort of Raymond Chandler-style monologue voiceover, if you like. In, in what other ways has, have games influenced your work? I mean, I can't, I can't say anything other than it's been a huge influence. If you look at the stuff that I'm working you know, on through the Radio Theatre Workshop, all the projects that I currently have going on are game-related projects. So we've been, I've been doing Animal Crossing Noir for Family Gamer TV. Obviously, I've got the Patreon isn't currently supporting Series 3 of Escape Velocity, uh, which is currently in post-production. And obviously, I've done the Kickstarter for the Chaos Reborn official audio drama, which will be, you know, which is currently also in post-production and which will be ready really soon. So games have had a massive influence on me because the projects I'm working on have all been inspired by games. But if you look at those three games, the, the thing that, that I come back to is it's about games which give you enough space to create your own fiction. And that, for me, is why Elite is so exceptional, it's why Chaos is so exceptional, and it's why Animal Crossing is so exceptional. Because even though they provide this huge world for you to play in, they actually don't tell you, you are this person, or you must do this thing. They create a blank canvas for you. And whenever you have a game that gives you a blank canvas, you are always creating your own stories. So that's the thing for me that's been influential. And it enables me, when I'm writing these video game-inspired audio dramas, it gives me an in-point for the story, because I always try and write my fiction from the point of view of what is the player's experience. I want a player to, having played the game, to come to the audio drama and to listen to it and think, yeah, that, that sounds like something I'd do in the game. Do you know what I mean? It, and that's how, that's how Escape Velocity started, was I fired up an old copy of Frontier Elite 2. I made a couple of jumps and I noted down what I did within those, those couple of jumps. And those, that initial little bit of gameplay completely set the tone for the first three episodes of Escape Velocity because all I needed to do was then actually flesh out the characters and the events around the things that I'd been doing as a gamer. And that's what I continue to do with my audio drama. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm looking at, obviously looking ahead at what project will be kind of next down the line once these ones are, are in the can. And I'm going to be looking at game-inspired projects again because I, I just find them so inspiring for creating stories uh, and for reflecting something in a fiction sense that we do as gamers when we, when we, when we enter into a game. Uh, and we arrive at your last choice now uh, and what you've led me to believe is your number one choice and that is Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Shadow Wars When I kind of got to this point in the list there was a lot of games that were kind of fighting for contention in space. You know, we've already talked about the fact that I, I really like turn-based combat. I really like turn-based squad games. And there were lots of games that were vying for this spot. An obvious choice would have been something like XCOM, particularly like the reboot, XCOM 1 or 2. 
they are absolutely brilliant games. Uh, I play them loads and love them to pieces. Chaos Reborn, a massive influence. That was in there. There's the original UFO. You know, the original UFO nearly nearly made into this list. I've chosen Ghost Recon Shadow Wars because of all of those turn-based games, Shadow Wars is the one that I come back to the most. It's a Julian Gollop game. It's the one that he created for Ubisoft. And it's just really good. <laughs> I don't know. The, 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 the balance of the characters in it and their different abilities mesh together so well. What you've basically got is a squad of six soldiers. You know, they're, they're individual characters in the story. But not only that, they are six completely different units in terms of um, the gameplay. So you've got the heavy weapons dude who has like a minigun. You've got the commander who has a pretty solid assault rifle. You've got your medic. You've got your stealth melee unit. You've got your sniper. And you've got your engineering specialist who generally, you know, when you deploy him, he also gives you a seventh unit because he's either got like a sort of turret that he can set up to defend a particular location, or he's got this little remote control tank. So you've got, in terms of the fiction, you've got these six distinctive characters who each have their own dialogue as you're kind of going through the story, but actually you've got six completely unique units on the battlefield, and it's about how you manage those units. And similar to what what XCOM, the reboot, did later, each character gets a move action and then a shoot action. Uh, And it gives you, I mean, if you look at some of these games and you sort of think, well, you know, I want to move over there. But if I move over there, what's going to happen? None of that was a problem in Shadow Wars because you could click on any square on the map and you could bring up the line of sight for that square. You can click on an enemy and it will show you all the places on the map that you could stand to shoot at that enemy. It's just, it's a game that doesn't believe in kind of leaving anything to chance or hiding anything from you. And on top of that, the random element of the game is, is, is quite reduced in comparison to something like, you know, XCOM, whereby you can be standing next to an alien with a shotgun and still miss them. Shadow Wars does away with all of that and says, you're definitely going to hit this opponent, but we can't guarantee how much damage you're going to do. So every time you take a shot, you get this little bar that comes up that says, the red damage is the damage you're definitely going to do. The orange damage is the random nature of it. And then the green damage is how much health they'll have left after you've taken your shot. But it means you can, you can kind of jump between your units on the map and decide which of them is most appropriate to take a shot at any given moment. XCOM, because it's such a kind of battle of, of desperation and positioning, you end up with this situation where your first contact with an enemy unit tends to be your last I mean, XCOM really is about getting into a position where you can destroy an enemy unit in a single shot because you don't want them to retaliate. With Ghost Recon, because the, the random element of the battle has been taken away, characters have much boosted hit points because obviously it can't be a game about just the first strike. So what you end up with is these tussles back and forwards. You know, it might take you two, three, or sometimes even four turns to destroy an enemy. And within that, you're then creating these little dramas, these little battles on a, on a small scale on the battlefield, which just make each mission somehow come alive and just be more exciting. It becomes less about a shooter and more about this real war of attrition, whereby you know, you're trying to hold a flag at the top of a hill and you've got these soldiers kind of sweeping up towards you and you're having to hold them off. And it, it's much more about managing your hit points as a resource and trying to keep kind of your soldiers alive and on their feet. If there's anything negative that I would say about it, against something like XCOM, is that XCOM gives you random maps for your missions, whereas Ghost Recon Shadow Wars will always look the way that it currently looks. But of all the turn-based squad games I've played, it's the one I come back to. It's on my DS so it's, you know, it's portable, it's with me kind of whenever I want to play it. And, it's, and at the end of the day, it's a strategy game by, by Julian Gollop, and they're always excellent. And in terms of this kind of, you know, my top five, you know, games for my, my remote outpost that I'm going to be stranded on, the, the game that I am most hoping is going to replace Ghost Recon Shadow Wars 
uh, is of course Phoenix Point, which is Julian's new turn-based squad game that he's working on. And I, you know, my, my most profound hope for that game is that it is good enough to permanently remove Shadow Wars from my from my favourites collection. Right, we've got, we're now going to do the quick fire round. So I'm going to ask you uh, a set of questions and if you can keep the answers to one word, if possible, okay. um, and we'll see where it goes. So uh, first question, uh, first multiplayer game you remember playing? Uh, a gauntlet in the arcades. Uh, most underrated games machine? Uh, I think Game Boy Color. Most underrated game? Alpha Protocol. Uh, what was the last game that you bought? Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening on the 3DS store. Uh, what's the weirdest game you've ever played? Oh, there have been a few. Um, probably Vib Ribbon on the PlayStation. And a game that you missed and you wish you hadn't? Um, probably Knights of the Old Republic. Okay, well, thank you very much, Chris, for your time. Um, it was actually uh, quite an interesting discussion. I said, well, I say discussion, you did most of the talking, but it was great to get your take on uh, some of the games. Before I say goodbye, is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, just to say uh, Escape Velocity Series 3 uh, is in, like I say, it's in post-production. It's just a matter of time now in terms of getting it edited and out. Uh, it obviously costs me a certain amount to make the series, so if you'd like to support Escape Velocity, uh, you can become a, a, a patron at Patreon dot com forward slash radio theatre workshop and thank you if you do okay once again chris jarvis thanks very much and thank you. that's it for our show thanks for listening mm-hmm.